The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. We are so blessed to have good leadership in our church on all fronts. It's made this transition so much more possible. And um, I want to give a shout out to uh, Everly Grace, myself, who, and Dustin and Sarah. Are they still here? Could they stand up? And that little baby? Yeah. Amen. And uh, I know that there's about half the women's soccer team here with you because they wanted to see Everly Grace, not to hear me preach. <laughs> so welcome. That Prov soccer team, by the way, is going to be serving the Christmas banquet to us on, in this room on November 30th, so treat them nicely after, after the service. I also want to introduce and announce Daryl Penner and Candida Dirksen at the back there who are engaged this week. Would you stand up? Praise <laughs> the Lord. Amen. We are, I asked permission to embarrass them that way, so thank you for giving me that because I know a lot of folks here are just joyful with you. God bless you. <clears throat> And I'm going to like to take a time to go to prayer again uh, this morning before we go to the message. And, and if you'll permit me, I'd like to lift up the country of Bolivia again. And uh, I know that there's lots going on in other parts of the world, but we're not about to send a mission team to other parts of the world. And so that's why it is especially on our hearts. There were another eight people killed in just outside of Cochabamba uh, two nights ago. Uh, the unrest is nearing civil war, really, and so we just ask that God would bring his peace to that country. So would you pray with me right now? Father, we just thank you that every, every time we gather, there's moments where we gather and there's reasons to rejoice and there's reasons to sorrow and, and grieve. And Father, we rejoice this morning in the birth of Everly Grace and uh, Dustin and Sarah and just thank you for them. We rejoice in Daryl and Candida and their engagement, Lord. We rejoice, Father, in your kindness in all ways in the human community, Father. But we also sorrow, O oh God, over the strife that we see in so many lands on this earth right now, where man's inhumanity to humanity is just dreadful and where injustice or discord reign and violence rules. And God, we pray particularly again this morning for the country of Bolivia that you might bring peace to that country, give wisdom to leaders, and give unity. And so we lift it up to you. And Father, particularly on this day when yet again we look at your word as it pertains to what it means to be created in the image of God, Father, we pray that you draw back the curtain a little more and help us to understand this theme and give your Holy Spirit to us to interpret and apply these things. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. <clears throat> It says in Genesis 1:27, God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But what does it mean to be created in the image of God? <clears throat> I like what Philip Yancey and Dr. Paul Brand said in a co-authored book called In His Image. 
They say that throughout history, each group projects their own ideas on this theme from their own era. Could you turn my monitors down just a little, please? They write this. For example, in the Enlightenment age, they assure us that the image of God has to do with the ability to reason. That makes sense in the Enlightenment age. In the Pietistic age, they identify it as the spiritual faculty of humanity. During the Victorian age, it was claimed that it was the capacity to make moral judgments. During Renaissance, of course, thinkers located the image of God in artistic creativity. And what could be more in our psychologically dominant age? What else could that image mean except the capacity for relationships and intimacy with God and with others? Well, it seems like that theme throughout church age has has gone with what is the current of the day. And probably there's truth to all of those very good answers. So this past summer when I was charting out the theme of themes of Genesis and how I would land on different texts and go through this book and how this, this foundational truth called the image of God in Latin, the Imago Dei, how would we land on that? I sat at the cabin this past summer near Kenora, and our friends Brian and Marla Dunn were visiting us, and I had many long discussions on the deck with Brian Dunn about what the Imago Dei means. How would we unpack Genesis 1 and 2? And uh, I, I came up with seven ways of approaching it, which is no, by no means conclusive or exhaustive, but that's the way we're attacking it. I, we've already spoken of some of these, this idea of being stewards of God's creation. We are, we are We are his vice regents here on earth, taking care. He says, have dominion, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and so on. We're also, Doug talked about it a couple weeks ago, about how this theology of work is part of our image of God. We are meant to make a contribution. We are meant to receive dignity in that contribution, yet not draw our worth from our contribution itself that we are also to cease from that work and, like God, resting from the creation that he did in six days, on the seventh day he rested, so also we are to be people who know Sabbath rest. We talked about that last week. Today we will be looking at spiritual beings, that we are not only bodies, but we are souls. And what does that mean? Next week we look at our rational moral choice as we think about the capacity to reason and feel and choose. And then we're going to take a break for Advent and Christmas, but I want you to not think that it's a break from the theme of the Imago Dei, because every week of Advent we're going to have a special invitation come, a special speaker, a person that will share with us of some nature of ministry or service where in our society some image bearer of God is not being respected as an image bearer or something that they have forfeited is causing them to be treated as less than an image bearer and we want to make our Christmas different this year because we want to invite someone over that's, that's feeling the pain and the hurt and yet they're fully an image bearer. So they're in prison, or they're a refugee with no friends here, or they're someone who's gone through some other dark time, and we want to make that image-bearing glorious person because they're created in the image of God. We want to make their Christmas better. So you're going to be hearing more about that. And then after Christmas, we'll conclude the theme in the new year as we talk about being relational beings 
And then finally, as we talk about being sexual beings, and we address the confusion of gender which is in our society today. Now, I appreciate the feedback that we're getting in some of the sermon series. And even this past week, I had a few of you come to me, and I deeply value how you have sort of fed back to me some of the ways that the series is landing on you, some of the ways that on your front lines, whether it's at work or at school or at home, how that has to be worked out. And that's different. I get that. That's different than the way I'm going to be conveying it sometimes. And you instruct me every time you do that, so I appreciate that. I had an aha moment several years ago when I was 20 years old, and I was attending what's now called Providence College. It was at that time called Winnipeg Bible College. And I remember a professor at that time by the name of Gus Pancorvo took me aside because I had asked him a question, and he took me aside, and for the first time in my life, I understood from what he explained what the image of God really means. You see, up until that time, I didn't fully have the, the complete package, I think. At that time, actually, I was coming into the city of Winnipeg and visiting the University of Manitoba campus with a buddy of mine, Steve Skrepnik. And we were coming in, and we were sharing the Lord on the University of Manitoba campus. And up until that time, it was basically telling them the bad news that they were sinners and then telling them if they listened long enough that there was good news, that Jesus Christ came to forgive us of our sin and to give us eternal life, and he can make a brand new person out of you. But what I was missing at that time, and the way that the teaching of the image of God rad radically changed two things. Number one, it changed how I saw people, and it changed what I said to them about what God wants me to say. You see, before that time, there was a, a bad news, good news, but now after I'd understood it, there was the good news, and then the bad news, and then the good news again, which I believe is the complete package of what God's Word teaches, that God in His love for humanity created us in His image after His likeness. The expression of His love for all humanity could not be better than investing His very essence into us. Every individual human is this unique and unrepeatable life, precious in the sight of God. Humans are valued because they're related to God. His essence stamped on us in estimable value. The image of God, yes, is marred by sin, but it is not obliterated. It is distorted, but it is not lost. And the good news is that Jesus Christ in his, worship, in his glory, in His love, in His mercy takes all that sin has twisted and Satan has twisted and this world has twisted and He begins to restore it and make it useful. Each individual, no matter how messed up, no matter how their life might look like today, this is a, a faith statement for you to do. No matter how messed up some of your friends are, no matter how messed up some of the neighbors are, the world around you, you look at them, it doesn't matter. They're an image bearer of God. And the mission of Jesus Christ is to restore that image. I want to talk this morning... I've already gone through that about what we're looking at. I wanted to share with you the message that we need to give the world is that God made you a certain way, but sin made you the way you are now. 
Now, that's where the world disagrees with us. And God can remake you in the way of grace and eternal life. That's the mission of the church. That's the mission of God. That we are not simply cast-offs with no redeemable value, but indeed Jesus Christ in him alone can we be restored to that wonderful image. Isn't it wonderful to be on this side of the good news? <clears throat> Isn't it wonderful to, to understand the big plot, the grand narrative of the scripture, of your very life, that little piece of the story of that grand narrative that you play. Isn't it wonderful to know where you fit in this eternal, long, big story of the universe? Isn't it wonderful that by God's grace, through the scriptures, by his spirit revealing Jesus to you, you know where you are. You know that you're valued. <laughs> You know, usually when I'm working alone on Saturdays in the office, I don't pick up the phone. But for some reason yesterday, I was in the middle of sermon prep. I, was pick, I picked up the phone, and it was a woman that said, I wanted to have a cut and curl appointment. <laughs> and I didn't know, oh, man, I was just thinking, how does this segue from my sermon? I just, I just really wanted to share with her something about the image of God. And I wasn't very fast on my feet, so I said, oh, I'm sorry, you got the wrong number. This is a church. We don't do hair, but we could help you in other ways, I said. <laughs> and she just laughed like you are and, and then hung up. <laughs> anyway, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 2. And let's take a look at the scripture we're going to be examining this morning as we think of the image of God. Genesis chapter 2, and <clears throat> we're just going to read nine verses actually this morning, the first nine verses of chapter 2. Would you stand with me if you're able to and listen to the Word of God? <clears throat> Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist or spring was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. May God bless his word. You may be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. As we launch into our theme, I'm 
going to let you know right up front that there's four points in the sermon insert in your bulletin, but I'm going to really go light on three of them. And the third point, we're going to really go deep on, okay, as deep as we can on a Sunday morning. But let me read to you an excerpt from a, a lecture that was given by a man named Malcolm Muggeridge that some of you might recognize. This was given back in 1978 in the University of Waterloo, so it is quite old. But I want to see if some of you might relate to it. <clears throat> you will let me know that by, by your Snickers, I think. You know, it's a funny thing, he says. <clears throat> when you're old, as I am, 75 now, and near dying, the strangest things happen. You often wake up about 2 or 3 in the morning and you're half in and half out of your body, a most peculiar situation, you can see your battered old carcass there between the sheets, and it's quite a toss-up whether you resume full occupancy and go through another day or make off while you can to see the lights of the Augustine city of God. And in that sort of limbo between being in and out of your body, you have this most extraordinary confidence, a sharpened awareness that this earth of ours, with all of its inadequacies, is an extraordinarily beautiful place, that the experience of living in it is a wonderful, unique experience, that relations with other human beings, human love, human procreation, work, all these things are marvelous and wonderful, despite all that can be said about the difficulty of our circumstances. Circumstances. And finally, there is a conviction passing all belief that as a minute particle of God's creation, you are a participant in His purposes for His creation, and that those purposes are loving and not evil, creative and not destructive, universal and not particular. And in that confidence, there is an incredible comfort and an incredible joy. End of quote. Now, I'm not sure whether that causes you to think about some out-of-body experience that you might have had in your existence, or whether it thinks, you think of a, a book you might have read of somebody else's out-of-body experience, but I share it with you because it illustrates to me the central truth that we're studying today, and that is that we are spiritual beings. We are created in the image of God. We are not only temporal, physical bodies that which we can see, but we are also eternal and spiritual souls, that which we cannot see. And so let's begin to think about this capacity for self-consciousness, this capacity to step outside of ourselves, as it were, and, and look upon our physical selves and be aware of us. The first thing I'd like to say about the passage that we've read is that it speaks of the end of God's creation, Genesis 2, uh, 1 to 3, the Sabbath rest after God had created everything. And then in verse 4 is that little word Toledo in, in Hebrew, which is the describing of the next section. How do we know it's describing the next section? Because every time that the author goes to the next section, he shares that little word. And that word means, these are the generations. And so he's about to tell us now about the next section of Genesis. And chapter 2 of Genesis is essentially a repeat of chapter 1, and yet it, it zooms in on Adam and Eve. It zooms in on the image of God that is mentioned at the end of chapter 1, 
as the highest of God's creation. And now it zooms in on chapter 2 to, to see what is Adam and Eve all about and, and how is it that their creation is of prime importance to God. The next thing I want to say about verses 5 and 6 is that the environment that God puts them in is absolutely perfect to sustain human life. Now, there was an, an, there was an astrophysicist and, and a creationist known as Dr. Hugh Ross who made an incredible discovery that was called the Anthropic Principle. The Anthropic Principle that he writes legions on is basically saying that everything on earth is lined up in exactly the precision and balance that is needed for human life to be sustained. And were it out of whack just a half a degree in any matter, we would be unable to live on planet earth. Everything from the, everything from the dozens of galaxies and their size, type, location, the star mass and colors, the tilt of the earth's axis, the force of the tides, the magnetic fields, the thickness of the earth's crust, the oceans to continent ratio, land mass and water mass, the oxygen level in the atmosphere, the water vapor in the atmosphere, the tectonic activity under the earth, the distance of the sun to the earth, and on and on and on and on it goes. Anything out of whack, we're done. Now, I don't know about you, but I just can't believe that that happened by random chance force. I cannot believe that. Or that it is sustained having happened miraculously, randomly, that it's being sustained by something that we would call evolution. I just can't believe that, but, I, but it blows my mind to think that there is a master designer that has already put it in motion and in his wisdom continues its motion so that we are not annihilated and die. The anthropic principle. I see some of this in verses 5 and 6. When I read that it says there was no bush of the field, it's almost like he's going back to day two of Genesis 1. There's no bush of the field yet in the land. There's no small plant of the field yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. There was no man to work the ground. And a spring or mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then, he says, the Lord God formed out of the dust this human and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God formed and filled the earth with all that was needed before he placed Adam and Eve in that place. To me, that's incredible. That is, the, that, that is to me, saying in its very nature that we, of all God's creatures on this earth, are of prime importance, for we are image bearers, for we are worshipers of the living God. And so let's move on to the third point. God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature. When I read these words, I cannot help but think of Psalm 139, which was shared earlier in the service. For you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And listen to this. My soul, he says, 
My soul knows it very well. The invisible part of me knows this. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book was written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them that came to be. And how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count your thoughts toward me, O God, they would outnumber the sand. When we read that, we must feel the love of God. Humans are the climax of God's creation. Let's take a look at verse 7. And let's just unpack it briefly this morning. First of all, it says that God formed man from the very dust of the ground. Now, in my research, the physical properties of dust are carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, silicon, phosphorus, and a few others. And if you were to take the dust out of your own home, you'd, you could add some dead skin cells in there and dog hair and whatever else you might want to find from the dust. And guess what? That when they take a human body and, and break it down to the chemical composure of a human body, guess what's there? Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium. Same as human, as dust. God formed from the dust of the earth, it says, this man, Adam. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. It's incredible. When you take creationism, when you take God out of this picture, we are just a bunch of chemical compounds. Humans did not evolve from other creatures, according to the Scripture. It says that God formed man from the dust of the ground. Ex nihilo is the Latin term used for this. Out of nothing, he made something. It's actually interesting because he actually had made the nitrogen, oxygen, hydrogen, phosphorus, calcium, etc. And then God took those things and, and he formed man from the dust of the ground. Created by a personal God with an intelligent design, not by impersonal forces. And the DNA and the atoms and the molecules and the hydrogen and all that stuff, that is not the cause of Adam existence. It is just the substance of his body. And God formed, that word vaster means to mold, shape, or form. It's the picture of the potter. It's used in that same way. The potter shaping the clay. And then it says that God breathed, the word, the Hebrew word ruach, into his nostrils, the breath of life. I like what Kenneth Matthews says about this. He says that breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss. And the significance that this was not only giving something, but making something. You see, when God made Adam, again, chapter 2, verse 7 is just a, a, a more in-depth repeat of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, talking about Adam's creation. But in this, it's, getting, it's zooming in, and now God is breathing in, forming and breathing into, it's like a kiss, he says, a very intimate creation. And man, it says, then became a living creature in the ESV, 
The word is soul, nefesh. Man became a living soul, spiritual being. And it means that we are, the soul is this animated, breathing, conscious, living being that is endowed with God's immortality now. The soul of you is the part that is going to live long past the the body of you is laid in the ground and is returning to the dust it came from. But the soul of you is that which will live eternally. Paul Brand, when he read the verse 7 as a child, and I think this is the way you and I probably read it, is that he imagined God the Father leaning over Adam, and Adam was like this corpse. God formed him out of the dust of the ground, and he was like a corpse. And then God leans over Adam, and in a sort of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam wakes up and shakes off and stands up. But that's not the way he sees it anymore. Let me read to you how he writes about it now. He says, I assume that Adam was already biologically alive. The other animals needed no special puff of oxygen, nitrogen, and carbon dioxide to start them breathing, so why should man? The breath of God now symbolized for me a spiritual reality. I see Adam as alive but possessing only an animal vitality, and then God breathes into him The Ruach, a new spirit now, infills him with his own image. And Adam becomes a living soul, not just a living body. End of quote. I love that. Isn't that precious? Aren't you precious in the sight of God? Herman Bavin says this. He says, the breath of life is the principle of life. The living soul is the essence of man, which means spirituality, invisibility, unity, simplicity, and immortality of the human soul, all features of the image of God. The image itself emerges in the fact that we have a spirit which was from the beginning organized into a soul. That's the way he writes about it. Now, I'm not going to comment, as I said, about the third the fourth point, the Eden of God's creation, because next week we're going to be really looking at the Garden of Eden in the east of Eden, this garden that God made. The the word Eden means delight. So it really was a paradise. And so next week we will look at that further as we talk about the moral capacity of being in the image of God, the, the ability to choose right from wrong. And that tree, that one tree that was so tempting in the middle of that garden, we'll look at that next week. But before we go too much further, I I want to bring this to as much application for us this morning as we can. And what I mean by that is I want us to go out from today with the ability to say, I think I know what this means for me personally, and I think I know what this means for me in how I treat other people. So let me tell you a story from the life of Jesus that I think perfectly illustrates image of God. Do you remember the story of the time when the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were trying to trap Jesus? And they said to them one day, 
This is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It said to him one day, Master, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, they're trying to get his divided allegiance. They're trying to trap him because the Jews did not like the Romans. And so Jesus responded to them by saying to them, bring me a denarius, it's a coin, and uh, he says, bring me a denarius and look at it. Let me look at it. Now, like, like our coins, the Roman coins had both an inscription and an image on the coins. It looks like our coins. Canada is a commonwealth country, so whose who's image is on our coins? Queen Elizabeth II. And, and the inscription on the coin of Canada's money is telling us her title, Queen Elizabeth, as well as telling us the value of that coin. It's 10 cents, it's 25 cents. Similarly, in Roman times, the coinage had an image and an inscription. And of course, the image on the Roman coins that Palestine used was of Caesar, the Caesar of the time. And it would tell of his title and his name, but it would also tell of the worth of that coin. And the way they defined a denarius was, a denarius was one day's wage in Palestine at that time. And so when they brought the coin to Jesus with that inscription, Jesus asked them, he said, whose likeness, whose image, and whose inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then Jesus said those amazing words. I loved when he, he does this. He just catches them in their craftiness. He says, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God's, God what is God's. Wow. Coins, give them to Caesar. Pay your taxes. But the image of God is stamped on every human being. You belong to God. Render to God every person on this earth because they belong to God. The image of God is stamped on every human soul. Now, there's a good chance that the image of Caesar on the coin that was brought to Jesus was well-worn. In fact, it might have been hardly recognizable. The metal at that time was not as good, and so it could have been that the image of Caesar was so worn out with skin and being handled and so on that it was hardly recognizable. Did that change the worth of the denarius in any way? Not at all. And what's the point? The point is that you and I, no matter how messed up by sin, no matter how defaced by sin, no matter how marred by sin, we still have the same worth in God's sight. No matter how you've been abused, no matter how much you've been used, no matter how much you've chosen to do things that are contrary to the glory of the image that you were created in. And so in the same way, you're precious. Regardless of how you raced, how shattered, how spoiled, how warped, how broken, how tainted, how defaced, how disfigured the image of God is, the image of God is still in you, on you, part of you, the essence of you, and the worth of you has not changed. 
before your last sin to today. From the time that you were conceived in your mother's womb, you have been precious in the sight of God. We dare not mock the image of God. We dare not mock it. The ministry of God and, the, and I believe of the church of Jesus Christ on earth today is to restore, to renew, to recover, to repair, to redeem, to do everything we can to mend the broken images that are all around us and in us so that we understand that we are not just physical beings but spiritual souls that need healing as well. John Kilner says the point seems to be that people are in God's image in spite of how deficient their attributes may be, not because they have good attributes. Do you believe that? And if you believe that, how should it change the way you relate to others around you that are in your world same author goes on to say, destroying someone in God's image in light of God's connection is tantamount to attacking God personally. Wayne Grudem writes in his Systematic Theology, every single human being, no matter how much the image of God is marred by sin or illness or weakness or age or any other disability, still has the status of being in God's image and therefore must be treated with the dignity and respect that is due to God's image bearers. That has profound implications for our conduct toward each other. He goes on and he writes that it means that people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that the elderly among us, that the seriously ill among us, that the mentally disabled among us, that children yet unborn all deserve full protection and honor as human beings. If ever we deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon be begin to depreciate the value of human life, and we will tend to see humans as merely a higher form of animals, and we will begin to treat others as such, and we will lose our sense of meaning in life. End of quote. Wayne Grudem. It means that, friends, we, we must understand this doctrine. It should change the way we see people. I believe that if we understand the image of the doctrine of the image of God, then we no longer think of human rights as human rights, but they're God's rights. <laughs> they're God's rights, right? They're God's rights over humanity, not any one person's rights over another person. Pat and I went to see the movie Harriet, Harriet Tubman, the American slave abolitionist who helped be a conductor in the Underground Railroad back before the Civil War in the United States. Go for it. Go to it. It's a great movie. Just, just let some of these themes of what other people's realities have been get down into your soul so that we can respond and realize we're not far from living this way, folks. How, how do we respond to a message like this? I'd like to suggest four or five things we could do because of 
just hearing in these weeks about the image of God. Number one, I think we can be a champion of human rights. And I don't mean it in a, in a simply humanistic way. I mean be a champion of human rights and let God define them, right? Let God define them, human rights. Secondly, I believe that we find common ground with unbelievers when it comes to human rights. Now, some of them we may not find common ground with, but the bulk of them we find common ground with unbelievers. Go to that common ground. Stand with someone. Go to the movie Harriet with somebody that is not a believer. Lead it into a discussion that talks about why it is that you believe human rights are so important. The foundation under it is that we are created in the image of God. What's your foundation for human rights? Talk about it. Let it lead to dialogue. Visit the Museum of Human Rights. My goodness, it's right in our city. (laughs) And you might not agree with everything analyzed in each exhibit, but you will be informed of man's, of humanity's inhumanity to humanity down through the ages. And how God has put us on earth to be vessels that say, no, humans were not meant to be treated this way. Be pro-life. Be pro-life in the widest sense possible. Do not just speak up against abortion. Speak up for the women who have had abortions. Come alongside the women who are thinking that that's their only option faced with a pregnancy. Be pro-life for those who are alive, not just those who whose lives are threatened, who have no voice for themselves. We dare not, we dare not mock or criticize or condemn a person who is opting for made medical assistance in dying or opting or thinking of an abortion. We, we dare not treat that image-bearing human in a way that denigrates them just because we're thinking we're speaking up for the, the principle of life. How do we walk it out? Speaking the truth in love, Jesus said, we'll grow up to be like him. Well, you better make sure that you're speaking the truth in love. And then finally, I want to say, celebrate Christmas in a different way this year. I know it's not quite Advent yet, but you've already heard some Christmas carols out in the foyer. You've seen the Christmas trees. <clears throat> and I'm asking you because it's, it's needing to be planned. Why don't you plan on celebrating Christmas differently this year? And during Advent, we're going to give you some ideas on how that could be done. <clears throat> Let me conclude with one comment as the worship team comes. And that is from an author by the name of C. John Collins. He says that the Bible gives us a grand narrative of a worldview story and each of the people of God should see him or herself as an heir of this story with all its glory and shame as a steward of the story responsible to pass it on to the next generation and as a participant whose faithfulness could play a role in God's mysterious wisdom in the story's progress. If you'd like some prayer this morning, would you take the deacons and Pastor Kevin up on their offer that 
you can meet back in the corner and someone will be there to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we just pray that you now will receive our thoughts and our meditations in this morning. And would you penetrate deeper into our souls to help us understand who we are as image bearers and, and who others that we even disagree with around us are image bearers and how is it that we're to treat them. Lord Jesus, lead us to be your ambassadors on this earth. Amen. Lord God, thank you for hearing our praises. As we stand here, all of us stamped with your image, and as we walk out of this building into a world where everyone has been created by you, stamped with your image, and so many do not know that and do not know the joy that they could have living their life in you and for you. And so I pray, God, that you would remind us every day that everyone needs compassion, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations, and I pray that you would open up our eyes to see people like you see them and open up our hearts to see people like you see them in this world where people are so thirsty for something that often they don't even know that they're thirsting for, but it would change everything. So I pray that you would empower us, that you would lead us, that you would embolden us, and that you would give us the words to say in the moments that you create and help us to look for those moments with everything we got. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Bless this day to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a wonderful day.